How do you have an important conversation with someone when you fundamentally disagree and when your disagreement is about deeply held values? Why are discussions across differences so important to democracy? And what role do universities play in fostering freedom of expression and civil discourse? Welcome to Sentience, a podcast from Trinity University that asks how people experience, understand, and express the world. Today's guest is Dr. Vanessa Beasley, the 20th president of Trinity University. Since she began in July 2022, Dr. Beasley has shown how powerfully a leader can open up discourse and inspire important conversations. She's earned accolades for teaching and mentorship at every university she has served, including UT Austin, Texas A&M, Southern Methodist, the University of Georgia, and Vanderbilt. More than most presidents, her scholarship directly informs how she shows up as a leader who promotes the rights and responsibilities associated with academic freedom and freedom of expression. Dr. Beasley has written a lot about political communication, particularly presidential rhetoric and how it's related to mass media. She's the author of You, the People, American National Identity and Presidential Rhetoric, 1885 to 2000, and the editor of the volume Who Belongs in America, President's Rhetoric and Immigration, as well as numerous articles and book chapters. Given my own background studying theater and how it relates to discourse, it was particularly exciting to discuss these ideas with Dr. Beasley. In our conversation, Dr. Beasley talks about how her research about presidential rhetoric on the national stage has come to shape her own presidency, and how civil discourse at Trinity might help prepare students to participate as citizens. I would just like to say thank you so much, Dr. Beasley, for joining us on Sentience. Thank you for uh, creating a podcast where we could have these conversations and for everything you're doing, Kyle, for our university and particularly for our School of Arts and Humanities. Thank you. Well, I'm really grateful to your leadership at Trinity. And, and one of the things that inspires me is how you stand up for academic freedom, which is such an important term for a university setting. What does academic freedom mean to you? So academic freedom means something different than freedom of expression, and it's an important distinction. Uh, both of those terms have a place in a university setting, perhaps unlike they do in any other institutional setting in the United States, and still the distinction matters. Academic freedom refers to the freedom that faculty members have as a function of their previous and ongoing credentialing by their academic communities to talk about uh, anything that they want to talk about relative to their academic disciplines. So the idea is, if you think about academia as a guild, if you will, right, you've earned academic freedom by virtue of your degree, by virtue of uh, the research and teaching that you do, by virtue of the fact that your community of scholars has said, this person meets our standards to be a member of the guild, and we want to protect their ability to talk about ideas, even controversial ideas. And that's where the freedom part comes in. So part of it's credentialing, but part of it is, uh, you know, sometimes the big ideas, the big questions are not things everybody wants to hear. And sometimes, particularly at the level of questions, uh, they, they are provocative, and that can be uncomfortable for some audiences. And so academic freedom is the hallmark of the U.S. higher education system because it says, basically, faculty have uniquely earned the right uh, to be provocative, 
And of course, with it, whenever you have a right, you have responsibilities. So academic freedom also, as, as you can imagine from the description I've just given about its source, has some responsibilities in it, right? So I have academic freedom to talk about any ideas I have relative to my scholarly discipline. That doesn't necessarily mean I have it as it relates to just general opinions I have about whether cats are better than dogs, right? <laughs> because that's not a part of my discipline or my expertise or frankly something I have strong feelings <laughs> about. Freedom of expression is different, and it's actually different from First Amendment rights still, right? So universities are also places, and in my opinion, um, the most important places in our society where freedom of expression must be the rule of the day, must be protected. And freedom of expression means that we create an environment where people are free to share their ideas uh, without retaliation, without a sense that they'll be shunned from the community. The essence of freedom of expression also means that in a, a marketplace of ideas, and I'm old-fashioned, I do believe that a university should be a marketplace of ideas, that in that kind of setting, I'll put it in very simple terms, you don't learn or you're not primed to learn how to be a critical thinker if you're only listening to people you agree with, right? Yes. So freedom of expression is actually critical for learning because none of us learn unless we're challenged. And that challenge can be discomforting in, in the intellectual and sometimes even in the physical sense. So, of course, we think about how we exercise freedom of expression, again, with an attendant norm of how am I communicating? Am I communicating? I'm going to use the word care mm -hmm. with regard for my community because the even though you have the right, for example, to uh, verbally drop a bomb in a room and then see what happens, um, that doesn't mean that that's the best uh, way to practice your freedom of expression with regard to care for a community. And again, that gets to the responsibilities. I have something I might want to say. I feel it's important to say. It's going to be unpopular. Um, and that means, I'm, from my perspective as somebody who studies rhetoric, it might also mean that you have an opportunity to think, well, how's, what's the best way to say this mm. at this moment? Because I actually do want to create conversation as opposed to belittling or humiliating anyone or, again, causing the idea that there might be um, retaliation or some sort of material effect on other people's livelihood or their ability to learn. Sometimes around controversial topics today, you have a lot of reactive responses and they seem knee-jerk. And sometimes it seems to me that responsibility is just the opposite of being reactive and that the core of responsibility is to respond, to respond to what the other has said or to respond to who the other is. And you really bring a unique perspective on this, not only being the president of our university, defending academic freedom and freedom of expression, but also a scholar of communication and rhetoric. Will you talk a little bit about your background with how you came to study communication so seriously that you wrote books and articles about it and gave such thought to it? Thank you for the way you set up that question, because I do think my answer will help uh, listeners understand why I take the responsibility part of it so seriously. So uh, the short answer to the origin story of my interest in rhetoric um, is that uh, I did not have a good academic start to my own undergraduate career at Vanderbilt University. That's where I was an undergraduate. I had always done really well in high school, but I really struggled um, with the entry-level STEM classes my first year at Vanderbilt. And it was the first time in my life I had, uh, I had a hard time in school. Right. I had a hard time in school. I'd always been someone who did well at school. 
the reason this is relevant to the path I got on was uh, my grades were so bad that first year that I decided I needed to take some classes and things I could do well, just from a you know math perspective to raise that GPA. And I've always really enjoyed public speaking, and I've always been told that I was good at it. So I took that public speaking class and an argumentation class thinking, okay, this will be good for my GPA. And it was, but also, wow, I found out it's not just, you know, getting up there and learning how to give a speech with three main points, right? There's theory behind persuasion, and there are um, ethical arguments about argument itself, right? And the care that you should have for the listener and the respect that you should show for your fellow arguer. And so even as an undergraduate, that those literatures became really central to the way I was thinking about human communication, not as a one-way Uh, and only rights-driven sense of what I have the right to do. The First Amendment's very clear on that, and actually um, I'm I'm a big defender of the First Amendment too, uh, and the carve-outs for prohibited speech that, frankly, the Supreme Court and some of our civil rights laws also make sure that we have awareness of and, and that we protect against, right? Because there's case law and there's precedent about what kind of speech is dangerous. So that doesn't mean anything goes. It does mean that we have guidelines. Getting back to my own path, um, when I started to think about going to graduate school, um, I'll be honest, two things were happening. One was it was a time, it was in the 80s, and the economy wasn't great. And my friends who had amazing GPAs were getting jobs that did not seem amazing to me. And I did not have an amazing GPA because, again, reference that first year crash. So I thought, I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I did not have a safety net. My family did not have resources. I had to do something. So I decided that I would look into graduate school or law school. I did really, really well in the GRE. I did not do really well on the LSAT. And so that, that course was set for me. But the other thing that happened at the time was it was near the middle and end of the Reagan presidency. And there were lots of really smart people writing in scholarly journals and in popular media about how the Reagan presidency transformed political communication in the United States. So one of the key examples that people talked about at the time, uh, well, there were two that I'll mention briefly. One is visual rhetoric. So Ronald Reagan never did anything on camera that was not completely choreographed to a level that was unusual for presidents to that time. So that got people's attention. And the other thing that Ronald Reagan did really, really well was to um, narrativize sound bites. So he was the first president, for example, in State of the Union addresses who would have someone sit up in the box, the first lady's box, traditionally known. And he would say, oh, you know, um, there's Kyle Gillette. And Kyle Gillette is here tonight because he represents the best in the United States tradition of freedom of speech. Right. And he'd have the ability to tell a brief story about the person he was pointing to and basically make them both a visual and a narrative emblem for a value or something that he wanted to associate with his policy agenda. And I thank you and your people for all your help in maintaining the continuity, which is the bulwark of our republic. So that's a skill and also a practice that we start to associate with, you know, stagecraft in addition to statecraft. And I just became fascinated with the way those moments were being produced and choreographed and also the way those moments had the potential either to open up 
ideas and conversations or at the same time perhaps foreclose other conversations. And all communication has the ability to do that. So I started to become really interested in how politicians in particular create scenarios in which, again, new possibilities are foreclosed or that they're opened up. And I'll tell you the spoiler alert in all of my research, it's much more common for politicians, Democrat or Republican, the party doesn't matter. It's much more common for them to want to control the agenda and foreclose possibility than it is to open it up. So in a way, as I've been studying rhetoric, uh, I've been looking for really, really difficult examples of people who have opened spaces up. And they're hard to find. They're hard to find. It's easier to go immediately, for example, into us versus them than it is to pause and talk about, you know, what would it mean to, to know that we are a, one community, even if we're all very different. And if you know much about my work, you know that's probably one of the themes in all of my scholarship, both of my books and in all of my articles. How do people create what Benedict Anderson called imagined community? And in some of your work that is explicitly addressed immigration and how we can include more people in the us and how speech can create those imagined communities in such a way that makes more speech flourish and more people included in the conversation. That's right. And I, I, when I teach undergraduate classes, uh, which I don't get to do a lot of right now, I'm hoping one day, uh, but I love teaching. And one of the things where we start with this question, no matter what the policy topic is, you know, the two most dangerous words in the English language, I would argue, are us and them. And they're dangerous not only because they're signs of division, right? They're emblems of literal division, but they're also dangerous because try to go one day without using them, right? It's almost impossible to communicate uh, with your peers, with your social group, much less on a larger stage without thinking about that. The theorist who wrote a lot about this is named Kenneth Burke, uh, and he's claimed by multiple traditions, including theater, because he wrote a lot about how these things intersect, particularly with drama. And he talks about this in terms of identification and division and says that it's one of the most elemental functions of human communication. But he's one of the people well level ahead of his time about thinking through um, what some of the unique and cross-cultural aspects of human communication were and how they manifest in rhetorical tropes. And again, in the case of us versus them, really, really powerful words that are almost impossible to live without. So what do you do with that, right? Even if you're self-consciously trying to think about, you know, even in a transactional way, like just for now, let's pretend we're in us and make a good decision for our community based on that, right? Even if we know there's a lot of diversity within our community, what do you do with that moment when you're realizing that you are enacting uh, that imagined community for a transactional reason and knowing, therefore, that the minute that transaction is complete or does or doesn't work, you're um, perhaps having too much of a possibility of reverting back to the world that was before we imagined that we were one us. So the last thing I'll say about that is um, I'm an optimist uh, and I'm also a believer um, that we have so much more capacity for compassion then we understand we do. And the language that we use, again, opens the door for an expanded view of compassion. So even if I talk about somebody else and the other, the way we were referring to it and the way philosophers refer to these exchanges, right, these ethical exchanges between at least two people, the fiction that I will ever know somebody else's experience is real, right? There's no way I can ever know your full experience. There's no way I could ever know your full identity. And yet I could speak as if 
um, John Rawls and other people talk about this, right? As if I wanted the best outcome for us, regardless of a knowledge of whether you or I might benefit from the decision. And so I'm really interested in those philosophies and other writers who think about that too. How can we, how can we approximate a world where we can have a better understanding of um, each other, even in light of our differences? Well, that's great. And it's nice to hear you talk about Kenneth Burke there, too. He was a big part of why I went to graduate school. I was really interested in the concept of terministic screens. Wow. Say more about that. I've never heard you talk about that before. Yeah. Well, I loved this quote from Kenneth Burke about how any, you know, terminology you use, any kind of language you use is a reflection of reality, but it's also a selection of reality. And that means it's also partially a deflection of reality. It filters what you represent. The language you use can completely create the reality that you experience, including, yeah, who are my people? How do you constitute a community or a narrative about your life or an exchange between people? And this connection to theater, you know, his kind of dramatic focus is really interesting too. I know you and I both saw The Prom and there's the first act of that musical ends with this song, uh, This Night is for Us. Mm -hmm. And it starts off seeming like this really liberatory thing. But as, as the song ends, you get this group of students who have created this other prom to leave out this lesbian student so that she's excluded. And so This Night is for Us takes on a very, a very dangerous and exclusionary tone. Yeah, there, there you go. Those are those words again, right? They can, they can open things up and they can also shut things down. Uh, you might be interested to know, given your background, that one of the things as an undergraduate for me that completely solidified my interest in rhetoric was a theater class. That's right. Yeah, I remember uh, taking a theater class that was probably intro to theater because I don't remember doing any work beyond that. And the professor that day was talking about staging. And she said, you know, I, I want next time you go to a performance, I want you to realize that everything on that stage is there for a reason. Every single thing. So she, I'll never forget. She said, there's a coffee cup on a table. It's there for a reason, right? And you have to think about all the ways you're taking in whatever it is that you're seeing, how and why they're there and how they contribute to a narrative about motive, uh, for one thing, but also how to make sense of perhaps things that are challenging. So in the case of this, that was an aha moment for me because, again, I was... Uh, I was in school during a time when people were talking about political communication and television in particular changing the way politicians spoke. And it, you know, it occurred to me um, as if it had never occurred to anyone, oh my goodness, that's the same thing that's happening in what I'm reading about the Reagan presidency and at the time folks like Roger Ailes who were helping him do his stagecraft. And so that, to me, that was such an aha moment that I thought, wow, I wonder if anybody's putting together what's happening in the theater and what's happening in politics. And of course, reader, lots of people were. But to my, you know, probably then 20 year old uh, thinking, it was just it's fascinating to think about like that. You're seeing things the way you're seeing them because someone wants you to That's see them right. that way. And there was this performance studies scholar I studied with in grad school, Peggy Phelan, who wrote about Ronald Reagan, which gets to one of the reasons we at Trinity have a Department of Human Communication and Theater, and it's together. We really speak to each other, right? Yeah, that's right. In my discipline is communication studies, and there's so many different ways to organize academic departments around it. And so there's no one way to do it. And yet I love, I love how it's combined and how the emphasis is shared at Trinity and the way it's organized here. So how did you go from such an interesting theoretical and engaged kind of scholarship and teaching to 
become an academic leader and eventually the president of Trinity University. And why? Well, that's a long story, Kyle. <laughs> but I'll try to I'll try to hit the high notes. Uh, I've only ever been a faculty member, and I still am a faculty member. Actually, that that's a point of pride for me. Uh, and one of the things that was presented to me at Vanderbilt around 2015 was an opportunity to take a university or to apply for or be considered for a university wide position. And that position was being the academic leader of the first year campus and the first year experience. So Vanderbilt has, um, like some universities do, the first year students live uh, a different part of campus on sort of a campus within a campus and within 10 residence halls, all of which have a faculty member in residence. And then there's a separate house for the dean's house, the dean of the first year experience. And so that was a role that I applied for. And to get to your question directly, I applied for it because at a certain point, particularly impacted by the students I've had across universities all these years, I was so struck by uh, what our students were and are and will be, I imagine, wrangling with, which is, you know, identity work. Identity work that happens developmentally in super appropriate and necessary ways when you're 18 to 22, we'll generalize. And also identity work that happens when you go from um, a high school environment or a hometown environment where you kind of have things figured out. You know, you know everyone, they know you, you're the smart kid or you're the this or that kid. And then you come to a new environment and for whatever reason, um, you may choose to reinvent yourself or circumstances may reinvent you. And I'll use my personal example, right? I was always considered one of the smart kids in my high school. And then I went to undergraduate and I had a real, it was really challenging for me, right? So it wasn't just, oh, I'm having a hard time doing this work. It was, I'm not who I thought I was, right? Because if I'm not the smart kid, who am I? That's all I've ever been known for. So when I would see students grappling with that um, inside and outside of the classroom, again, not just at Vanderbilt, but other places I've taught. I've taught at SMU, University of Georgia, and Texas A&M. Texas A&M was actually my first faculty job. You know, this idea of creating community and also how it relates to you when you feel like your own identity is in question really mattered to me. And it mattered to me as I saw them struggling with it, and it mattered to me as I saw the opportunity for learning to go back to the idea that you have to be in an environment where you feel some degree of psychological safety to learn. So another way of saying that is if you feel like you're in a room where your identity or your livelihood or perhaps even your life is under threat, constant threat, you're not going to learn because your body and your mind and all the all the systems that make you human are going to be on hypervigilant, right? You're going to be scared and you're going to be reading every single bit of stimuli as a threat. Um, and so I didn't have that language then, but thinking about, you know, how do we build college community, campus community? How do we bring together, again, very, very important, bring together people from different backgrounds with different beliefs. I don't want to be in an environment where there's only one way of thinking or one kind of person, right? How do we do that and yet create a positive outcome where there's enough psychological safety that everybody does feel like they're learning from each other? And then walking away from that either, and actually either outcome is good, either with new beliefs yourself or feeling great about your previous beliefs because you're thinking about them in a different way, having thought about a counter argument, right? It doesn't matter to me which beliefs you leave in. It matters to me that we create an environment where you're able to engage in that kind of self-reflection and critical thinking about your own ideas. So that's a long way of saying I thought, wow, I've been writing about this stuff for a long time and I love thinking about it. I wonder if I can do it. Like, I wonder if I can 
build community out of diverse people, all of whom, particularly with the first year students, are really engaged in a very uh, liminal space where they're thinking about their own identity and their own beliefs are being challenged. And that's a good thing, right? And so uh, I got the job and we moved to campus and we lived on campus, which is why uh, several people ask me, you know, how I feel about living on Trinity's campus now. It's something I've done before. Um, I love living on campus. I love having all the proximity to students and the events and the things we can see. And that opportunity to, to fast forward, it was so fulfilling to me to be a part of building community, even in the hard parts, Kyle, like even in the parts where, you know, during some of those years, there were episodes uh, that that are going to be familiar to anybody who's thinking about that period from 2016 to 2020, right, of uh, violence against black people and worse, right, Um, deaths and thinking through, you know, what does this mean for a community of people who are trying again to learn from each other, but also who have different levels of both real and imagined threat within their ecosystems. So really getting a lot of um, practice at, okay, let's think about how communities build. You can't imagine that community is possible at a large scale unless it can feel real at a small scale. So what's the unit there? And then how do we think about, particularly on a university campus, how do we start to get to think people, particularly bright students, to think maybe it's okay if you don't know the answer. Mm. Maybe it's okay if you try something and it doesn't work out. Uh, Maybe it's okay if you, you know, not talking about myself here, but really I am, get a D in physics. Maybe that's okay, (laughs) right? Um, As opposed to the end of who you thought you were. And and starting to work with, again, faculty who were chosen because they too wanted to live on a college campus and also do their day jobs. And for me, the whole job was thinking about, could we write a co-curricular guide, right? So there was an opportunity to think about about a 12-week course for first-year students, non-credit bearing, completely outside of the academic um, realm proper, but always facilitated by a faculty member and an upper division student about, well, what is this transition to college? And the last thing I'll say about this as it relates to my current job, and, and one of the things I really like about being an administrator is, you know, we can't, and in any capacity at a university, we can't just say, well, now, welcome to our campus. You know, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. We hope you're comfortable here. Good luck, right? Yeah. To our conversation earlier, freedom of expression matters on a college campus in a way it doesn't necessarily matter in other institutions or other environments in the United States. So we can't just say, oh, it's different here. Good luck. We have to give people tools and we have to give people spaces to mess up and to practice. Right. I mean, that word practice is so important because it's not intuitive. And frankly, uh, you used this word earlier. um, It's really easy to have a highly reactive response to a threatening idea the first time you hear it. In fact, I'd say that's pretty typical of humans. Right. So it's really hard to learn those skills to say, even at the physical level. okay, all right. I don't like what you said, but I'm going to sit here and breathe for a little bit. And I'm going to, you know, try to summon some compassion and and thinking about, I really don't like what you said. And I've never heard somebody say that before. And I really need you to help me how you could get there, you know, to understand how you could get there and start with those questions um, that both speak to perhaps my own humility. Right. But also give the other person a chance to be in a learning space with you because you need to hear more about what they just said, probably. And they might need to hear more about why it was difficult for you to hear that. Boy, do we have to trust each other to do that well. And trust takes time, right? Trust is hard. Yes, absolutely. You know, a few years ago, everybody was talking about safe spaces 
And what you're saying makes me think, you know, yes, the whole point though is that it's it's not a space to be safe from other people's ideas. It's a space to be safe to explore and understand others' ideas. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, I I think about it often in terms of a false dichotomy between um, speaking and arguing and listening. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a pretty good speaker. I'm a really good arguer. What I have had to learn over time, and as an administrator in particular, is how to be a better listener. Mm. And we, we act as if that's easy. It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. But if, you know, it almost gets back to the ethics of it all. If someone is willing to share their idea with me, which is a risk on their part, um, and this is true for a citizen or for an administrator, then I think I have some sort of ethical obligation to take that seriously. Um, and I can decide if I want to walk away from the. So I'm not saying, um, you know, everything's on the table. I can decide if I want to walk away from that, but I'm going to choose to make a decision about why and when I would walk away from something as opposed to saying, wow, I really, really, again, I really don't understand how you're, how you're there. Can you help me? I'll say one other thing about this very specifically. Um, I've had occasion through friendships, again, there's the trust piece, with friends that have very different political views than mine, um, and maybe even family members that have very different political views than mine, just to sit, like sometimes for a really long time, and say, you know what, we are not going to agree on this. But again, I, I want you to walk me through how you got there because I just can't see it. And I hope everybody gets to practice that. It's hard. I mean, I know we have some holidays coming up where we might be around tables with uh, family members. It's really, really hard. But it's if you can risk the parts of it that are hard and you can have some commitment to a long, you know, the long term relationship, which is not, you know, not everybody might agree to those conditions. But if you can do that, it can be kind of a beautiful thing, a hard thing, but also a beautiful thing. It shows how much strength there is in vulnerability and humility and opening oneself. It seems like your background in thinking about rhetoric and communication and maybe specifically presidential rhetoric has really uniquely prepared you to be a president and to think about how do you foster these kind of communications across differences in a college community. Will you say more about that? Sure. The skill that I learned as an administrator that I loved was just actually building community. That sounds really basic, but it's hard. And so I thought, I love this and I'm good at it and there's a need for it. So that was the ground floor for me. Like I want to be in a place where I'm helping build community. And I do. I think most people who are imagining themselves as educators have a conceit that there's an age group that they like the most. And I just really love 17 to 23 or 24 year old. I love that moment in development. I loved it with my own children um, as a parent. And I love, I love talking to undergraduate students. And what, that's why is that? Sorry to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. Uh, that's a great question. Um, it's maybe that, you know, maybe that self-consciousness that doesn't ever name itself that, you mm. know, Hey, I'm coming into this really sure. I know what I want really sure. I know what I think. And particularly within a university community, I'm probably going to hide that I'm a little scared sometimes, or I'm probably going to hide that I'm not sure sometimes. And so it is, to use your uh, language, which I quite like, it's a combination of certainty and confidence and also some humility and insecurity. And I think developmentally in the way our society is structured, at least for a college-age student within a college environment, and I'll say I've only been in environments where it was residential, so I can't speak to other contexts, um, but where we're living together and committed to learning 24-7 from each other, that combination of, I'm, I sort of think I know I have things figured out, but I'm here because I'm pretty sure I don't, right? Mm -hmm. I just love that dynamic, that mm -hmm. tension can be 
um, and what you're trying to figure out about who you are. And again, it's not calling for anybody to be engaged in wholesale change unless that's what they want to do. It's just that sort of coming into ownership of right. your ideas in a new way. Uh, and again, that's based on the way we run our systems in the United States. It's not it's not the case everywhere. So I like that moment developmentally. Um, I like the opportunity to be with students at that time period and have them think about how that one book that was called Science in eighth and ninth grade yeah. probably didn't capture you know, <laughs> right, all of right. the nuance um, in science. And, and we could say that about any discipline too. So like that moment in our educational system where things are getting super complex and as a thinker, you have to go from, oh, wow, like before it was just enough to memorize. Like now I've really got to think about, right. you know, not only what I care about, but also um, different epistemologies. Like how can science get to conclusions the way it does? And that's epistemology is, of course, the study of how we know what we know. And I think that's what happens on a college campus mm-hmm. is you see different epistemologies fighting for truth claims. And you also see people realizing, oh, like in that class, you could just sort of put it out in numbers on the board. And in this class, you've got to do something different with the way you put your argument together. And I like that building. As it relates to a presidency, I think my academic study of the U.S. presidency also has helped me see something in a new way. And that is, we, as a culture in the United States, we make a lot of assumptions about what presidents have control over and what they don't. So the president can say something and it and the US president can say something and it makes the market crash, right? There are power in those words and that's why I study or it, you know, unites a community or divides a community to the central point. But it's also true that presidents aren't magic, right? And sometimes we have an expectation or maybe even a superhero complex or something about the presidency that many scholars have argued. I'm not the only one who's raised this. Many scholars have argued could actually be bad for democracy. Dana Nelson, who's a colleague from Vanderbilt, has a book called Bad for Democracy. And she says one of the things our popular culture does and we do sometimes in media and our everyday thinking about, you know, who we're going to vote for, which party we identify with. Like the president has magical powers to change things. And actually that's a, she says, kind of an anti-citizen way of thinking about things. So I see that as an opportunity within higher education too. You know, obviously you want a president to represent the best of the university. You want a president to be out there talking as I love to do about what makes Trinity different and special and why this education is so wonderful. Um, and I can't just talk about those things and make them true, yeah. right? I can talk about them because I learn from what I watch our faculty and students and staff doing on the ground, um, but I'm not magical. I'm somebody who can use this opportunity to build community. That's so meaningful for democracy that, you know, a president is not a monarch, not a dictator, is deliberately the opposite, is one who presides as the first among equals of citizens, and it strikes me as a, in a university as a microcosm in the way that you are talking about people who are in all their different epistemologies are also at the age where they're becoming citizens. That's beautiful. That's what I should have said to answer your previous question. I love that. And I actually, I'll pause and say what you said was beautiful, Kyle, and it's beautiful because you know, being a citizen doesn't mean just one course of action. It doesn't mean just complaining. And it also doesn't mean just building, right? It means, again, you know, this might sound like a cliche, but it means rights and responsibilities. And I never think or talk about one without the other. Um, So it's to take it back to freedom of expression, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it, at least not without thinking about how you're doing it, yeah, right? That's great. How you're creating conditions. And for me, those are conditions for learning. 
Oh, that's great. And you are, you're working with everyone to try to create those conditions for learning. What are some, some things that you think are unique about the opportunity you have to create those conditions here at Trinity? What do you hope to foster and, and want to see more of? Yeah. One of the reasons I was so struck by the model of education I saw at Trinity when I toured with my older son in 2014 was the combination of a what I'll call a research active faculty. And what that means is faculty who are themselves thinking about the important debates and questions in their fields and wanting to contribute to them, wanting to be part of their conversations among their uh, within their scholarly disciplines and perhaps even across disciplines, interdisciplinary questions. So those kinds of scholars sometimes in higher ed are only in research settings. And yet at Trinity, what I saw was scholars who were so engaged in that kind of thinking, that kind of always asking new questions, but also saying, and I want to bring undergrads into that too, you know? Yeah. And that I've, no matter where I've taught, I've always thought, number one, whatever I'm working on, if I can't explain it to an undergraduate in my class, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So the conversational partner that happens or the partnership that happens in a class when you respect each other and you, you know, the student takes the faculty's idea seriously and the faculty takes the student idea seriously. And I saw that at Trinity and I was so compelled by it. Um, So that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing is, you know, after COVID, we will see um, different kinds of educational institutions continue to differentiate along the delivery method. So I am talking about the rise of online education, the rise of credentialing instead of degrees, all kinds of things that we're seeing happen now. And in the main, because I believe in education, that's a great thing. It's a great thing. More education, more forms of education, going to more people, that's a great thing. It's also true that the model of education that we have at Trinity, um, I believe, and there's research that supports this, I believe that it's so powerful precisely because it is offering a comprehensive model of education to a particular kind of student who wants that residential experience. So for my money, when you put all those things together, I want experience where you're learning from faculty who care about you deeply and care about your learning. And that might mean they're challenging you out of Mm -hmm. that space of wanting you to be a a more self-conscious or critical thinker on your own part. And we have a campus where it's also fun to go to a a movie screening or a play or to go watch the, you know, the soccer team or women's soccer team just won the, the conference championship. So, you know, you don't get that many opportunities in the United States. Most people don't ever have the opportunity to have the education we're talking about at Trinity. So that does, by definition, make it a rare and precious thing. And if we're going to be good at it, I want us to be the best at it. And that does mean starting with building community. That's great. And building that sense of belonging through all of these is a way for students to stay in relation to each other even across their differences. And like you say, such a big part of democracy, of citizenship, of the university life is being able to encounter that kind of diversity. So diversity also means, yeah, can you see different perspectives where people coming from a different point of view? And can you talk in such a way as to try to understand that? And can you accept the fact that things aren't always going to go your way? Yeah. Right. So like taking education such as the one we're offering at Trinity and what I'm about to say might be controversial, but thinking about it as a life skill, 
Um, The ability to speak your piece, speak your mind, have your idea out there does not mean that it will be persuasive to everyone. And it also doesn't mean that it's going to be what the decision maker, the way they want to go. So we've got to get away from this frame that if I say it or, you know, demand it or claim the space for it, it means that I have to walk away if I don't get my way because that path is not productive. (laughs) And you have to you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you have to be able to say, I made the best case I could and the decision's going to ma- be made in a different direction. And because I support and belong and want to affirm our community as a community, even though I don't like the way, you know, the decision went down, I'm going to have to say it matters to me to still be a part of this community. But you have to have that some sense that the greater good really matters and you're not going to get your way every, I'm not going to get my way every time in the greater good. And that's an opportunity for learning too. Gosh, and such an important thing in the United States right now, when too many people turn away from differences of opinion and just turn toward those that they think are the us and see those who disagree as the them. I think that there's pretty good data right now. I think you're right. There's pretty good data right now that suggests that it's not just that the you know increasing polarization along partisan lines of the United States is leading to other problems, but also... I'm going to use the word suspicion Mm. and suspicion is also a scary word, right? Because how does somebody that you are suspicious of, how do you ever invite them into your community? Yeah. Right. So again, that doesn't mean I'm going to like everything everybody else says, but it does mean I've got to make some kind of agreement with myself about um, what my obligations and why I want to be a part of this community. And again, I'll say it, you know, it's a lot easier to be in a community where everybody believes the same thing you do. And there are times when we need that, right? I always say, you know, there are times when you need an environment where you can just walk in the room and exhale and say, wow, did this thing happen? And everybody in the room goes, yep, that happened to me too, right? That's <laughs> right. that's kind of a beautiful and an important moment. But if we live that way all the time, then we'll just completely see more silos being built to use the often used metaphor and more echo chambers being built too. And that's really worrisome. Yeah, it takes away the thought that makes us both individuals and community members and our ability to imagine otherwise, to critically assess all of these great things that you learn in the liberal arts. And it bear with me, this connection is in my mind to artificial intelligence, that the idea that you could have prose and communication replaced with something automatic. And in, in an age of increased automation, I've heard you say that in an age of chat GPT, it's the people who ask the most interesting questions that are really going to make a difference. Will you say more about that? Yeah, you are getting me absolutely right. I think it's the people who ask the most interesting questions, the people who understand the technology enough to understand how it works, right? So it's not the technology itself. It's not a mystery to them. Um, And I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for people like me who identify as a humanities professor to understand and lay people's terms how these things work. And then the third thing is, okay, after the Communication Act, let's say it's something generated by ChatGPT, people are going to have responses to that. So if you think about the, you know, tech term would be more the feedback loop, more humane term would be like reading the room and figuring out what we're going to do next, right? 
that's an intensely human and humane way of thinking about where are the implications. So here's an example of that. I was at a meeting over the summer and there was a futurist speaking. I love that occupation. <laughs> uh, and they were saying, you know, 10 years from now, a baby's going to be born and the parents are going to immediately, like within an hour, get a printout of the child's DNA and here are all the things that are likely to go wrong. Here are all the conditions you're susceptible to or the child will be susceptible to. And they said, you know, they might have that data instantaneously, but they're going to they're going to break down in tears. Right. Because, you know, big surprise. None of us have perfect DNA. There's going to be something there. Right. So their point was. Um, you know, they said, my money is on the people who sit with people who receive data-driven, could be completely accurate information, right? But just data-driven information divorced from the context of humanity or human understanding or human relationships and have to process that information. Mm-hmm. And so that might be an extreme example of like, you know, he was saying what those parents need the next day after they pick themselves back off the floor again and imagine the life they're going to have with this child, Right. What they need that next day is someone who can say, okay, let's talk about this, right? And so for my money, as AI will improve lots of things about our society, and it will also mean that the dangers, if you will, I think are largely going to be connected to missed opportunities to be human together. And so staking a a claim in that ground too right now, right? Big data is great. I I really like to be data-driven before I make a decision, but it can't be the only thing you think about. You have to also think about implications for community, implications for people and the way they live their lives. Right. Right. I love how you said that because those implications are connected to a sense that the future is open. No matter how much data you gather, it depends on we are responsible for what we do in the face of it. To call back to what you said earlier, I really like what Rebecca Solnit says about hope, Mm -hmm. that optimists and pessimists both have something in common. They think they know the future and that hope is keeping it open. So I'm curious, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is uh, anytime I'm around our students, uh, anytime I have the opportunity to really sit with really anyone, but especially you heard me say, you know, my interest in young adults and the ability to have conversations because their future is, how to say this, it is developmentally appropriate and in fact important that they are future oriented, right? And it's those conversations about, you know, it's easy enough for somebody at my stage in life to say, well, we did all we could, right? (laughs) But they can't say that. That's not an option for them. So being around our students gives me hope. And then more importantly, to the larger point, the way our students care for each other gives me hope. Yes, I think it's true. And it's also a great thing that our students have different viewpoints. And as we said earlier, come from different backgrounds, have very strong belief. That's a great thing because we can learn from each other. And our students demonstrate a care for each other Most of the time, even when they know that that difference is there. And again, there's something both artful about that choice. And there's also something that gives me hope like, oh, maybe they figured this out, how it's okay to be friends with somebody and not agree on everything down the line. Um, And maybe that friendship itself is what the source of hope is, right? The last thing that gives me hope is, you said it in a beautiful way earlier, is contingency. Like we think we know how this story is going to end, but we don't know. I don't know. So we might as well imagine a better future and we might as well think about how we're going to get there. And for me, one of the big lessons when I hold that mirror up to myself really has been, well, then I better be a better listener. I mean, I, I better be a good reader. I better know enough about the world so that I have some information that I trust. 
um, and I better read enough to know what information I can trust. But man, I better be a better listener. And um, so my own awareness of that and how I see other people getting really tired of people not listening to each other, that in a way is hopeful as well. Well, Vanessa, listening to you talk about higher education and democracy gives me hope. I'm glad we could have this conversation about hard conversations. Thank you for inviting me, Kyle. I'm glad I could be here and we could have this conversation too. I'd also like to add uh, that I'm glad that you said yes to the recent invitation to serve the university in a new and critical way. So in your new role as special advisor to the provost, as you're thinking through uh, basically, you know, our capabilities to do the things that we say we value, it's going to be hard work. Everybody wants to affirm the value of freedom. Everybody I know, I'll put it that way, wants to affirm the value of uh, freedom of expression and our ability to listen to each other. And of course, as we've noted, uh, part of the role of the university is to ask new, difficult, sometimes provocative questions. And the ability to have those conversations uh, is something I don't take for granted. None of us see great models of that in the world around us, I dare say. And so just like other things that we learn to do at universities that are innovative and yet critical to our future, uh, this ability, this ability as a community to understand our responsibilities to each other that these opportunities grant us is very important. You know, I think a lot about just because I can say something, I still have choices in how I say the thing, right? That's right. And taking responsibility for how that resonates with others, that you are, as you say, speaking in a community. It's never this isolated thing to have freedom of expression. That's exactly right. And the community's strength develops as our individual skills develop, and yet the community's strength is a thing unto itself. And we can't take the community's strength for granted either. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, President Beasley, for coming on Sentience. Thank you, Kyle. I've had a wonderful time. I could talk with you for a long time. Thank you for the great questions. I'm so grateful to Dr. Beasley for her leadership at Trinity and for her ability to talk about the importance of talking. Stay tuned for our next episode of Sentience, where I talk to Dr. Norma Alia Cantu about folklore, literature, and the border. 